This is Scott Mann, and you are listening to a best-of release of the interview with Melanie G. Snyder. The United States continues to wrestle with issues of policing and impartiality under the law. The increase in recording of police interactions by citizens has drawn attention to issues that have been spoken about for many years, the overuse of force and falsification of reports in order to support the word of the officer. This has led for a call to use technology such as body cameras to create greater accountability for police officers. Examining incarceration and conviction rates show that blacks, Latinos, and Native Americans are punished disproportionately compared to whites. If someone is poor, which is becoming an increasing concern with the erosion of the middle class, then one can wind up getting stuck where fines or other financial levies can create additional, potentially insurmountable, financial hardships. To frame that another way from my own experience, as a white middle-class male, I have substantially less concern during my interactions with police, whatever the case may be. As someone with a modest income and an existing support structure of friends and family who have financial means, I'm more likely to be able to pay a ticket or fine immediately, or should I be arrested for some reason, to make bail and not get stuck in jail unconvicted while awaiting charges or a trial. I could be arrested and be out relatively quickly and still retain my job and the other resources and benefits that allow me to maintain my social and economic status. I don't see the world as fair or that everyone is created equally, but I do believe that we are all entitled to equal treatment under the law. With so many systemic issues that currently exist in society, it raises the question to me about whether or not technological solutions and incarceration are the best ways to handle justice in America or elsewhere. After speaking with Melanie as part of this interview, and sitting down and listening to it again, I'm convinced that restorative justice holds the keys to unlocking a more just, fair, and in the end, peaceful society that provides the space to take care of the earth and the other people that call this place home. As permaculture practitioners, we can use this idea in our daily lives, when we interact with others, and in deciding how to proceed when harmful incidents occur. And we can also introduce the concept as we work on social and economic permaculture. Doing so raises awareness and makes the practice of restorative justice more well-known, understood, and accessible so that it can be used. As we stop the war on invasive species, let's also stop the war on our fellow human beings. My guest for this episode is Melanie G. Snyder, author of Grace Goes to Prison, and an individual who works on issues of restorative justice and prisoner reentry. You can find out more information about her and her work at MelanieGSnyder.com. One of the core ideas of this conversation is that of prison as a last resort, and that forms the theme for how restorative justice and rehabilitation and treatment programs have a positive impact on the people and communities who make use of these options. I see this interview as an important way as permaculture practitioners to apply what we know, especially among those with sociology, psychology, law, or criminal justice backgrounds, to engage the system that currently exists and to create a better world that values all the people who are a part of it in a rehabilitative rather than a punitive way. This was a very candid conversation, and I touch on a number of stories of people from my own life who were impacted by the criminal justice system. Melanie's work in this conversation mattered to me, and from speaking with many other people, they have loved ones who could have been saved if other options existed. Listen if you know anyone who has ever had a negative interaction with the law, and consider how implementing restorative justice and reentry programs in your community could help to create a better world. If you enjoy this conversation, you can help me reach a broader audience by lending your support. Find out how by going to thepermaculturepodcast.com slash support and making a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution. Now then, on to Melanie Snyder. I'll join you afterwards with some short thoughts. Then, Melanie, if you are ready, could you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to do what you're doing, and then we can get into the topic of restorative justice. 
Yes, well, thank you, Scott. I will say that 10 years ago, I did not know anything about the criminal justice system. I didn't pay any attention to it. I think like many people, I just sort of believed whatever was on the evening news and uh, aside from shocking headlines, didn't pay any attention. My first career was in the business world. I uh, have a master's degree in business and spent over 20 years working for large companies. But in 2007, I met this woman named Marie Hamilton, who had been volunteering in state prisons around Pennsylvania for over 30 years. And we were introduced because she was going to help me with some volunteer work I was doing with at-risk youth. And as I started talking with Marie and learning about the work she had been doing in the prisons, I was really astounded. And she had actually just retired and was actively looking for someone who might be willing to write a book about all of her experiences in the prisons. And as we got to know each other a little bit, she asked if I might consider writing this book about her life and work in the prisons. So I am not quite sure what made me say yes, except that as I heard her tell some of her stories about things that had happened through her years in the prison. I really felt very deeply like these were stories that lots of people needed to hear. And so in part, that was what led me to say yes. And at that point, I had done some freelance writing, all nonfiction articles for magazines and newspapers, certainly nothing on the scale of writing a full-scale book. But I then immersed myself in the world of prisons for several years, started interviewing incarcerated men and women, people uh, who worked in the system, prison guards, wardens, judges, and so forth. And what I started learning was just such a shock. And that was the point. I, I sort of reached a point of no return where I felt like knowing the little bit that I had learned, I could not turn away from this field and I needed to learn everything I could and ultimately decided to actually get involved myself working in this area. So after the book was published, it was published in 2009 by Brethren Press. After the book was published, I actually spent two and a half months traveling across the United States and back in a little camper van, meeting and talking with other people who were doing restorative justice, prisoner reentry, alternatives to incarceration, and uh, had a number of speaking engagements to talk about Marie Hamilton's work in the book but also was trying to learn everything I could from all of these other people doing this type of work across the country. And when I returned to Pennsylvania at the end of that two-and-a-half-month-long cross-country tour, I approached an organization here in Lancaster County that I knew was doing some things around prisoner reentry and asked whether they needed any help, and they said yes, they did. and I offered to volunteer with them initially. They told me that they did not have any funding <laughs> to pay anybody to do the work that they had to do. So I volunteered, worked, with, worked for them pro bono for about a year and a half, and then they got a small grant and were able to contract with me on a part-time basis starting out several years ago to serve as their executive director. And so that's what I've been doing ever since, serving part-time as their executive director and just continuing to educate myself in a variety of ways. When you first became aware of Marie Hamilton's work, where would you say your perspective on prisons was at? Did you see prison time and incarceration as part of the criminal justice system as something that was supposed to be punitive? Or was it something that was to be reformative for the people who were serving their time? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I think that I assumed that prison probably was, you know, the right thing for people who went there and that I didn't really think that much about whether people were getting education or treatment or rehabilitation. I, I think I just didn't really think much beyond, 
okay, if they're being sent to prison, that's probably where they need to be, and the things that are supposed to be happening, hopefully, are happening while they're there. I just was so uneducated about the whole thing and, and really was so shocked when I started learning how little in the way of rehabilitation or education or treatment or any anything positive really, so little of that happens in our prisons because they have become all about punishment. So I think that was the real turning point for me. I had just widely assumed that you know, the right sorts of things and whatever needed to be happening for people who were in prison was happening. And the shock of learning how little of that really happens, I think, was what made me feel that this was an area that really needed more visibility and more attention. So is it fair to say then that you began to see prison and the criminal justice system as a place where rehabilitation should be occurring? so that individuals who are in the system can return to society at some point? My thinking certainly has evolved as I continue to learn. I mean, I I feel like I've only begun to scratch the surface of all that there is to learn because it's an incredibly complex system with decades of history, some of it, you know, okay, and some of it absolutely appalling. But I think what I've come to now is a belief that the vast majority of people who are in our prisons in the United States, that that is absolutely the wrong so-called solution for them, and that the vast majority of people who we are currently sending to prison should instead be given opportunities to be involved in alternatives to incarceration, restorative justice programs, educational programs outside of the prison setting because the prison setting itself has just a tremendous number of deep-rooted problems. And for many people, a period of incarceration will make them much worse. And so my, my position now is we should not be sending anyone into prison except the most dangerous, violent folks who, for whom we just don't have any other options. So that prison is the option of last resort after a long line of other possibilities have been exhausted? Absolutely. I mean, we've criminalized addiction. We've criminalized mental illness. And so we are locking up people who really need treatment for their addictions or treatment for their mental health needs. We lock up a lot of nonviolent offenders who, as a result of being locked up, often lose their jobs, lose their homes, lose their families, and while they're in prison are surrounded by violence and structures of power and control and come out of prison much worse than when they went in. We absolutely should not be locking people up in our prisons when their offenses are nonviolent offenses. We also lock people up for things that aren't crimes. Uh, We lock people up for technical parole violations, like missing uh, an appointment with their parole officer or not attending an AA or meeting or other training session that they may have been required to attend as part of the rules of probation and parole. We we lock people up for not making payments against their court-imposed fines and costs. And in many cases, because of all the collateral consequences of a criminal record, including many, many limitations and restrictions on where you can be employed, people who have been incarcerated have much lower chance of being able to get a job, which means they will not have the income necessary to make payments against their court-imposed fines and costs, and then they face the risk of being reincarcerated for not making those payments. And so we really have a situation now where we have returned to the debtors' prisons of the 1800s. It's really, in some cases, quite shocking and, and really barbaric. 
In the parlance of research, I know that a single story is an anecdote and not evidence. But I think about one of my uncles who was pulled over one night. And when the police officer asked him, what will happen if you go to jail tonight? And my uncle was honest. He's like, well, I'll lose my job because you'll take me in for a DUI. And by doing so, I won't be able to pay my child support, which means that I'm going to then go to prison for the next eight years until my son is 18, because I'm never going to be able to pay back that money. And just how that one little event, one bad decision of not staying at the bar for another half an hour until his blood alcohol content was legal, and I'm not saying this to excuse his action, but how that one choice could cascade through the rest of his life, and how many stories like that exist within our prison system. Absolutely. I mean, we currently have 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. Now, again, certainly some proportion of those who are currently incarcerated are people who've committed violent crimes. And I'm not by any means saying that we should just, you know, close down all the prisons and set everyone free. But in an example like that, for your uncle, certainly there should be other options for him. And it's very encouraging, actually, to hear that a police officer asked what would be the impact if I take you to jail right now. That shows at least some level of of sensitivity on the part of the police officer. But many people never get asked any such question, are simply hauled off to jail, and often lose, as your uncle indicated, lose everything. And it's not just during the time that they are incarcerated because we have created through our system of laws so many additional collateral consequences so that people really, in effect, continue to get punished through these collateral consequences, often for the rest of their lives. So even after you sort of paid your debt to society, quote unquote, which I don't particularly like that phrase, but that's you know what a lot of people understand, you will continue to be punished in myriad ways even after you've served your time in prison and served all of your period of probation and parole. Is that where restorative justice and the reentry programs come in in order to help individuals not have those kinds of long-term punitive impacts? Well, that would be where reentry programs come in. Restorative justice programs really should come right up front before and, in my view, instead of incarceration. So restorative justice really looks at four basic questions. The first question is, who has been harmed by crime? The second question is, what are their needs? The third question is, who should be accountable for addressing the needs and harms that were caused by the crime? And then the fourth question is, what can actually be done to address those harms? And in restorative justice, both those who have been harmed and those who have created harm are involved in working out the answers to those four questions. And so in the restorative justice, if we can bring the person who has caused harm and those who have been harmed together up front and have them work through the answers to those questions. Research has shown that people who have experienced harm, commonly referred to as victims, have a higher level of satisfaction with the outcome in restorative justice programs that those who have caused harm, often referred to as offenders, are much less likely to commit additional harm or commit additional crimes. And it's just a healthier way of sort of working through what should be done. But our traditional criminal justice system, if you think about it, the state sort of takes over as the de facto victim. In criminal cases, it's Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Smith. And really, victims and offenders largely are sort of cut out of the process, except 
uh, you know, in the case of trials, sometimes victims are asked to testify, offenders are put on the witness stand. But with regard to making the core decisions about what should be done to address the harm, victims and offenders are almost completely cut out of that discussion. And it is the state that decides what should be done to address the harm. And quite often, the what should be done is incarceration, other penalties for the offender that doesn't give the offender any real direct connection to the personal harm that they have caused to the victim or victims. And sometimes victims say, okay, yes, well, knowing that so-and-so is going to be locked up for a while gave me a certain level of comfort, but I still have needs that aren't being met simply by that person being, being incarcerated. Restorative justice, in my view, really should be happening much more often on the front end. And just to clarify, I was wondering in restorative justice for that second question, what are their needs? Does their refer to the victim or the perpetrator of a crime? That's really an excellent question. The second question uh, and the answer to that really hinges on how you define the answer to the first question, which is, who has been harmed? And in restorative justice, we want to take the broadest possible perspective on all four of the questions, starting with who has been harmed. Because certainly those who are considered the victims have been harmed by a crime, but their families have been harmed. The offender or perpetrator has been harmed by crime. The offender or perpetrator's family is harmed and the broader community. So if you answer that first question really broadly and and really make a, a sincere attempt to look at all of the layers of harm to all those different entities, then the second question, what are their needs, you would start breaking it down by what are the needs of the victim? What are the needs of the victim's family? What are the needs of the offender, the offender's family? What needs might there be in the broader community? And then when you get to the third question, who should be accountable for addressing all those needs? Again, you're going to break it down, you know, sort of individual entity by individual entity. And in some cases, I mean, initially you might say, who should be accountable? Well, the offender, of course, should be accountable. And yes, that is true. And again, if you've done a good job of really examining all the layers of harm that are caused to many different entities, in the who should be accountable question, you may uncover issues that reside within the community, the broader community, that if they were addressed, if structural problems of lack of education, lack of access to resources, uh, discrimination, when you get to who should be accountable for addressing those needs, well, the offender isn't going to address those needs. The broader community needs to take on some of those issues. And we're starting to see, I think, really uh, largely catapulted into the public eye by Michelle Alexander's wonderful book of a couple of years ago titled The New Jim Crow. We're starting to have, I think, a better comprehension nationally about how structural racism and discrimination among communities within communities of color and against people of color have permeated our criminal justice system. And those are things that, in terms of accountability, we as a, as a society have accountability for addressing that. Our government structures have accountability or should have accountability for addressing that. So all of those four questions in restorative justice really are interlinked and need to be addressed with, uh, in the broadest possible and most holistic possible way. So answering these questions are as much an individual answer as they are a systemic one. Yes, I would say that's true because there will be particular things that individual victim may need that a victim in a similar crime may or may not need. And so there are certainly things that will be very particular to the specific people involved. And then there will be structural 
issues or systemic issues or community-wide issues that may need to be addressed as well. Would you be able to walk us through an example of what you mean for each of these questions, just as kind of a, an example of what this process would look like? Absolutely. I'll share with you a story that comes from, a true story that comes from an agency that I volunteer with here in Lancaster County called the Center for Community Peacemaking. It's a case about a young man named Michael, and just so you're aware, we have permission to to share this story, and I've shared it elsewhere. When Michael was about 16 years old, he uh, was sort of an, an angry young man, did not particularly like school, just didn't, didn't have a lot of direction. And one day, Michael was actually loitering in a grocery store, a small family-run grocery store here in Lancaster County. And while he was in that grocery store, he pulled a cigarette lighter out of his pants pocket and set fire to some items on the shelf. And for a little while, he sort of stood there and watched the fire kind of take hold. And then realizing what he had done, he ran out of the store and ran away. So by the time one of the store employees noticed the fire and was able to put it out, the fire had caused about $1,500 worth of damage. So here's a point where the criminal justice, the juvenile justice system could have kicked in could have, because Michael was 16, because he had intentionally set the fire, he could have been prosecuted as an adult. He could have been charged with arson and could have faced some pretty serious penalties. Now, uh, Michael was caught. Fortunately, the juvenile judge that uh, worked on his case knew about the restorative justice program at the Center for Community Peacemaking and decided to refer Michael to that program as a first step. And so in the process, what happens first is when we get a referral, we talk first with the victim. And so one of the mediators spoke with the store owner and said, what are your needs? What is the total of the harm that was caused to you as a result of this fire? What are your needs? What would make it feel to you like things have been set right for you? And so the store owner sort of detailed what, what they wanted. They had $1,500 worth of damage that had, you know, caused some hardship for their, their business. Their employees were a little concerned now when they saw people, young people coming in the store. And then once we get a sense of what the victim needs in terms of setting things right or addressing the harm, we ask whether they would be willing, if the offender is also willing, to sit down face-to-face with the offender and sort of work through addressing the issues. And in this case, the store owner said, yes, I would be willing to sit down with the offender. And then the next step in the process is we sit down with the offender. And now in this case, because the offender was a minor, the mediator also met with his parents. And in that meeting, we're trying to get a sense of what exactly was going on at the time that the offender committed the crime if they know why they did it or had, you know, anything particular uh, behind uh, their actions, uh, we ask about that. But we're also trying to get a sense of whether the offender truly seems to be willing to take accountability and take responsibility for their actions. And so when the mediator met with Michael and his parents, they, they got the sense that he probably did, really did not fully comprehend all the many ways that he had caused harm. But he did seem willing to take responsibility. And so after those initial conversations, in this particular restorative justice process with juvenile offenders, we then bring the victim and the offender together. And again, because Michael was a minor, we, his parents were also included. And the victim is allowed to bring along whoever they might like. So during a face-to-face meeting, after setting a few basic ground rules, you know, just to sort of maintain a level of respect and we don't want yelling, screaming, cursing, and calling, those kinds of things. So we set a few basic ground rules, but we do also say to the victim, at the same time, this is your opportunity to really make sure that you express whatever you want to express to the offender and let them know all the ways that they have caused harm. And so the store owner at that point said to Michael, 
okay, it's not just about the $1,500 worth of damage that you've caused. There are some other things that you created. My store employees now feel like every time a young person walks in our store, they have to be concerned about what, what that young person might do. So it has affected my employees. It affects our other customers who may feel like they're being watched a little more closely. But you've also impacted my children and my family because my children heard me telling my wife about this fire in the store. And as a result, my children have started having nightmares about daddy burning up in a fire in his store. So he laid it, the store owner just laid it all out there. And by this point in these, uh, in these face-to-face dialogues, quite often offenders really, you can see them just sort of becoming overwhelmed, understanding the full impact of the harm they've caused. And so Michael at this point was very contrite. He apologized sincerely to the store owner. And by the way, the store owner's name is Mr. Good, which is a Lancaster County <laughs> name. Sometimes when I tell the story around the country, people say, is that really his name? So Michael said, what, you know, what do you need from me? How can I make things right with you? And so the store owner, Mr. Good, and, and Michael worked out this agreement for Michael to start making payments little by little to pay off the financial impact of all the harm that he had caused. And those kinds of agreements, if we can get to them in these face-to-face dialogues, are wonderful. We document them very carefully, lots of detail, exactly how much is Michael going to pay, how is he going to pay it, what are the dates, you know, is he going to deliver it by hand to Mr. Good, Uh, all of those little details, the devil's in the details, as they say. By the time we as mediators get to uh, the point where the victim and the offender have had a good face-to-face conversation, they've worked out a detailed agreement, we're feeling pretty good because that really is, is one of the things that we, we want to see happen. But Mr. Good then took it a step further. He said, there's something else I want to talk about here. He says, Michael, what is it you want to do with your life? What plans do you have? You're in high school now. You know, are you going to college? What are you doing? Well, Michael's 16 years years old and sort of lacking direction. And Michael says, I, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do with my life. And Mr. Good says, well, are you, are you planning to go to college? And Michael sort of hesitates and says, you know, no, I, I'm, I, I don't really think so. And Mr. Good says, you know what? I think you have more potential than you're giving yourself credit for. I think you need to plan to go to college to pursue a better path for yourself than what you're headed for if you were to continue doing things like what you did in my store. And here is a bargain that I am willing to strike with you. If you carry through on this written agreement we've just made, you make every one of those payments on time, payment in full, graduate from high school, go get yourself enrolled in college, I don't care where, and you come and see me, I will put all of the restitution money you have paid to me toward your college tuition. And so Michael did make all those payments. He got himself a part-time job. He made all those payments to Mr. Good. He graduated from high school. He went and enrolled in college. And he went back to see Mr. Good and said, I'm going to go to college. And by the way, I'm going to major in criminal justice, which is so perfect, right? And Mr. Good, true to his word, put all of the restitution money that Michael had paid to him toward Michael's college tuition. Michael went on to complete his bachelor's degree in criminal justice in a little over three years. He then went on to get a master's degree in criminal justice. Now, if you think about that outcome versus the potential outcome of Michael at age 16 potentially having been charged with arson, whether he was charged as a juvenile or charged as an adult, either way, and you think about where he may have ended up, you know, five, ten years after that versus the outcome of what really happened, I just think there's, there's no real question that incarcerating him or putting him through the traditional criminal justice system would not have had anywhere near the kind of outcome that restorative justice had. So that's just one case, and as you said so wisely earlier, that's an anecdote. It is not statistical evidence, 
but I think it's an excellent story because it does show the power of restorative justice. And it's one, I was going to say that it's one life saved by the process, but there's so much more than that because of all the lives that Michael can now positively impact by having been given that opportunity. Oh my goodness, yes. And Michael's Michael's parents, think about if they had seen their son through the criminal justice system and being incarcerated and coming out with a felony record and all the ways that that can continue to impact his parents and his family. Think about Mr. Good. Yes, in the criminal justice system, Mr. Good may have eventually gotten his restitution money back out of the criminal justice system to pay for the uh, financial impacts of that crime. But he and his employees would likely still have that sort of uncomfortable sense of what's the next kid that walks into our store going to do to us. His family likely would have looked on things differently. So layers and layers of positive impact that the restorative justice approach can have versus layers and layers of negative impact that the criminal justice system often has. So then, is Michael involved in restorative justice now? I don't know. I had been in contact with him probably three or four years ago, but uh, have since sort of lost contact, so I'm not sure what work he's doing right now. The other piece of this, we've walked through restorative justice. What is the reentry program, and how does that help offenders or ex-offenders? Yes, well, first, we use the term returning citizens because we believe that terms like ex-offender, ex-con, ex-felon continue to keep people in a box, continue to stigmatize them. So we, we use the term returning citizens. So this, this work that I've, I'm involved in now part-time with the Lancaster County RML, the RML is a collaborative effort between social service agencies, uh, criminal justice partners like the prison, probation and parole, the courts, uh, the DA's office, the public defender's office, to work with people coming out of prison and returning to the community who are at medium to high risk of recidivism, of winding up reincarcerated if they don't get some, some supports and some assistance, who have lots of needs and few resources. So that's the specific population in one, in one of our main programs. And what we do is we get referrals of folks who meet those criteria, and we assign a case manager who will sit down with them, really help them to put together a detailed plan and set of goals for themselves. And then that case manager is there to really walk alongside them through their transition from prison back to the community, help them get connected to, to programs, to resources, to mentors. We have an extensive reentry employment program at the Career Link here in Lancaster County to help them develop skills and work readiness kind of soft skills, but also occupational skills in high-demand areas like welding and forklift driving and customer service and so forth. So we work with them really on an intensive basis over a period of months, often two, three, four, five, six months, to just help them get to a point where they are stabilized, hopefully employed, living in permanent housing, reconnected with some positive people uh, in the community, whether it's their family, church, mentors, and so forth. And what we have found is that when people are provided with that extra support, that it can be very successful in reducing recidivism, which, of course, improves the safety of the community because people are not returning to crime. That's sort of the reentry program that, that we do here in Lancaster County. There are, you know, a number of reentry programs around the country and around Pennsylvania, and, you know, each of them does some sort of different things. But we try to use the principles of evidence-based practice, in other words, things that research has shown are effective, 
in working with uh, with folks who have been in this situation of, of being incarcerated. And uh, we have had very, very good success. Do you have any numbers on what the reduction in recidivism is through a reentry program like this? Well, <laughs> it varies. That's such an interesting question because, first of all, there's some controversy and disagreement around the country about how to define recidivism, about over what time period, about are we talking about recidivism being, did the person get rearrested? Did the person have any additional contact with the criminal justice system? Or was the individual reincarcerated? And again, I mentioned earlier that we reincarcerate people for things like technical parole violations. And so there's a big difference between being reincarcerated because you missed a meeting with your parole officer or because you failed to attend an AA meeting that you were told that you had to attend or because you failed to make a payment on your fines and costs versus being reincarcerated because you have committed a new crime. You've robbed somebody or, you know, assaulted somebody or whatever. So you will not find standard numbers around the country, but some of the latest statistics are that about one out of every 2.3 people who is incarcerated and, and released will wind up back in prison within three years of their release, partly because we don't invest enough in re-entry supports and services, partly because of the whole technical parole violation thing. So we're locking people up for things that really aren't crimes, that are their rule violations of the rules of probation and parole. But one thing that I really was surprised to learn in, you know, in my education process over the last seven or eight years is over 90% of all the people that we ever send into prison do eventually get released. So if you think about that, over 90% of all the people that we incarcerate will be released someday. Why wouldn't we invest in doing whatever we can in the way of reentry initiatives when they come out to help them be successful, to make sure that one out of every 2.3 of them doesn't wind up back in prison? There are two kind of little stories that go with what you just shared. As I have a friend who's on probation who has to make it to their weekly probation meetings but doesn't have a vehicle and relies on a transportation service to get there and how easily they could miss a meeting. And if, you know, if their probation officer doesn't provide them any kind of leeway or alternatives, the impact that it could have on them by missing that one meeting. Absolutely. And that's a very common scenario. Quite often people who've committed crimes lose their driver's licenses for a variety of reasons. And if they live in a place that doesn't have good public transportation or they don't have other good options for getting to these court-mandated meetings and appointments, they risk being reincarcerated. Someone else that I know served several years for DUI convictions, admitted very much that they had a drinking problem something that I didn't know about until they were going in. They were very functional and hit it well. But when they got out, they already had a job lined up, ready to go, which was fortunate that their old boss had kept space available for them and said, you know, when you make it through, you've got a job. But then it wound up being the reentry process because of what they were going through, the transition from prison to a halfway house for, I think, six months before they could then move into their own apartment the structure and rules that the halfway house put on them that made it difficult to return to the job that they already had. Yes. The time that they had to spend in the halfway house, the hours that they were allowed to leave, the hours that they had to be there, when all this person wanted to do was go to their job. But because of what the bus schedule was to get from the halfway house to their job, my friend had to get, they had to get an allowance in their terms in order to be able to leave like 15 minutes or early and get home 15 minutes after what their normal curfew hours were in order to get to and from their job. And that is another very common scenario. And so we have created a lot of additional layers of structure and rules and restrictions that make it unbelievably difficult for people to actually successfully complete 
probation or parole. Other pieces of my friend's story is, you know, not ha- being able to drive, having the license removed, how difficult that made it then to search for other jobs, to try to better the position that they were in, to be a more functional citizen. And, you know, going back to school to try to further their education. Well, if you can't make it to campus, then how do you continue that? How do you become a better member of society? There was a lot of self-reflection for my friend in understanding what they wanted to do and not wanting to continue that cycle anymore. But now doing their best to never return to that situation is made that much more difficult because of what they're not allowed to do, even though they've served their time in prison. And think about this. So think about as an alternative to that scenario of the person being incarcerated for several years, then coming out to a halfway house, having all these rules and restrictions, et cetera. Instead of that, think about a potential alternative to that entire scenario where the person is mandated to attend drug and alcohol treatment, counseling, classes, while also maintaining their job, perhaps being ordered to pay some money into a fund that would help to pay for drug and alcohol addiction treatment and counseling, perhaps uh, being mandated to put money that they're earning through their job into a fund for victims of DUI crashes. I mean, think about how productive that could have been for your friends versus simply being locked away for several years, coming out to a halfway house, and then coming out and being under supervision and, and sort of continuing to struggle with how do I, how do I sort of get back on, on my feet here. And in their case, the income that they were earning that time that they could have been paying taxes, being a, a member of the economy and paying into their basic services, And everything else that would have been involved for those two years, that for them, that was nearly $100,000 in lost income for that time. And for us as taxpayers, that was easily another $100,000 of lost money for us as taxpayers because we were paying for that individual to be incarcerated and then supervised. And, you know, I think in Pennsylvania, I believe the latest state prison figures I've heard for Pennsylvania are something like thirty-two dollars to $35,000 per inmate per year that it costs to lock them up. And that doesn't include the cost of probation, parole, supervision afterwards. It doesn't include all the upfront costs of the court system and law enforcement involvement in his case. So again, many more productive alternatives certainly could have been considered in that case that might have, instead of making your friend a drain on society, could have made him a positive contributor to society and wound up being a much more productive option for him, for his family, for victims of DUI crimes, and for the community as a whole. It costs so many dollars, but it doesn't make sense. Looking at this and thinking about it, Yes, it's expensive and it doesn't work. So why do we keep paying for it? Why are there not more voters and taxpayers speaking up? And I believe what I've sort of come to is I just continue, you know, educating myself and talking to people and learning all I can about this system. What I've come to is I think that the vast majority of people are where I was 10 years ago. We simply don't know. We're unaware, and and the only stories that tend to make the big headlines are the scary stories of violent crime committed, somebody's mugshot on the front page of the paper. The good stories about the thousands and tens of thousands of people who do get released and who sort of trudge through doing what they're supposed to be doing don't really make front page news. And so I have come to a point where I feel like part of my responsibility is to share the things that I have learned about the system with as many people as possible to help raise awareness and to help help other people to think differently about this system and to start speaking up in the way that I finally started to think differently. And for me, that's part of why 
doing the talk that I did at the TEDx event was so pivotal because I had the opportunity through that to reach not only the people that were there in the room at that event, but through the whole TEDx channel and the opportunity, because it's now posted online, to reach many more people. So I I do feel like that has become part of the role that I have to play. Knowing what I know, I cannot remain silent. And so how do I speak out in ways that can help move things forward in, in better ways within this system that we have? I appreciate that you're a voice in this and sharing this information. My first encounter with the prison system was with my uncle, the one who I mentioned earlier, because he did spend some time in jail for missing child support payments shortly after his divorce from my aunt. And I know someone else who was caught up in um, their partner was dealing drugs. And there were questions about whether or not this other person was complicit or not with their partner dealing. And that person was locked up for, I think, 18 months. And the impact that that had trying to get back on their feet to get their child back into their life as a single parent. And from a young age, that never, a lot of these choices didn't make sense. And then studying sociology in the mid-90s, one of my high school instructors was also a priest, um, an Anglican priest. And so he looked at these questions of prison from a spiritual and a social directive. And for him, he taught that God is mercy and grace, and that we should provide opportunities for others in our lives to have that as well. So he always looked at prison and incarceration as a place for reform and not as a place to be punitive. And that's something that I've always carried with me but I never understood how to address it until recently, listening to your talk, becoming involved in wanting to create a better world and hearing about things like nonviolent communication and studying that and the idea of restorative circles. And I'm very thankful that you laid out what you did as a way to understand this path and how it can be an alternative. I only have one more question about all this uh, before we bring this to a close and I ask you for your final thoughts. And that question is, how can someone get involved if they want to become a mediator or learn more? What are the requirements to work with or volunteer with a reentry or restorative justice program? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. Well, I do think that for anyone thinking about this, that it, it is important to start by wrestling with your own feelings and perceptions and perhaps fears and misperceptions about working in this field. With regard to getting into restorative justice, there are some wonderful organizations all around the country that do restorative justice work. So you could, you know, simply do a a Google search and try and find uh, restorative justice entities in your area. I would say the most basic requirement is compassion and acceptance the willingness to listen to people where they're at, meet them where they're at, try to offer compassion and acceptance. You know, it's what Grace Marie Hamilton, the woman that I that I wrote about in the book Grace Goes to Prison, did. She didn't have any fancy degrees. She didn't have any fancy education in this area. She simply was willing to offer compassion and respect and look for the good in other people. Now, with regard to restorative justice mediation, there would certainly be training programs that each individual agency would require. With regard to reentry programs, again, compassion and respect really are at the root of it. Being a listener for someone who has been a victim of crime, being a listener for someone who has caused harm by committing crime is incredibly powerful. So that really is the fundamental requirement is is the compassion and and acceptance and respect. Beyond that, I'm not aware of any re-entry programs or restorative justice programs for that matter that require any certain type of degree to do the work. But again, you would want to connect with local programs and just ask them 
what they require in terms of any training, any screening that you might have to go through before becoming uh, involved in our program. Well, thank you for that. I'll make sure that I include links in the show notes to all the resources that you've mentioned, such as your website, as well as the Center for Community Peacemaking, the Lancaster Reentry Program, and all of that, so people can find out more. And I'll see what I can find about any uh, national groups or others who are doing this kind of work for listeners who want to find out more. A great resource at the national level is there's a website, Restorative Justice Online. It might be just rjonline.org. So check that out. That's a national resource. And I believe they may have listings on their website of restorative justice uh, programs around the country. There's also nacrj.org, the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. That's another tremendous resource. And I actually sit on an advisory board for NACRJ. So check those national resources out. And that brings us to the only other question that I always ask in an interview, and that is, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners? One of the most profoundly moving and thought-provoking things I've come across in in all the research and, and learning I've been trying to do over the last seven or eight years is a quote from Brian Stevenson, who was the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative that works on many of these criminal justice issues that we've talked about. And Brian Stevenson has said, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And I truly believe that if, if we can remember that when it comes to talking about people who have committed crimes, in particular the so-called offenders, If we can remember, instead of asking what's wrong with you that made you commit crime, if we can think about asking what has happened to you that has led you into committing crimes, and what do you need, how can we as a community help and support you, I think that would go a very long way. So maintaining that humility that we have all, <laughs> I've been to conferences where people have said, we're all ex-offenders. We're just the caught and the uncaught. And that's a humbling perspective if we're honest with ourselves. I think it really comes down to changing how we think about persons who have been caught committing crimes and how we treat them. I think in addition to thinking about the fact that we are the caught and the uncaught, we are also the privileged and the discriminated against. I think it's very important to really educate ourselves about the structural racism and systemic discrimination against people of color that has become really a core part of how our criminal justice system operates. And for those who have led a life of white privilege and who may not have been caught or punished if caught as harshly as folks who, because of the color of their skin, may have been treated much more harshly. I think we really need to have some honest dialogue in this country about all of that as well. And so we're the caught and the uncaught, but we are also the privileged and the discriminated against. Thank you so much, Melanie, for joining me for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it, and it's helped me to understand this process and system better and how we can use restorative justice and reentry programs to create a better world. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. It's, I, I always feel like it's such, a, it's such a, a privilege, and I'm very humbled by it, to have an opportunity to talk about this in venues where, you know, where perhaps perhaps it may reach some folks and and get them to think a little bit differently. And I know so many people who I want to share this with who are not part of the regular audience for this podcast who it could make a difference for. And I look forward to doing that. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And that was Melanie Snyder. She referred to a large number of resources, which you'll find links to in the show notes. There you will also find the four questions 
for restorative justice, and her TEDx talk. Work like Melanie's helps us to break out of the mold of current thinking and shows that other systems are possible. We don't live in an unchanging machine. We're not cogs or sprockets of something that just keeps going on and on until we're ground away and need to be replaced. We are part of a dynamic living system, and we can change it to be more kind, more peaceful, and more beneficial to all. Until the next time we are together, take care of the earth, yourself, and each other.